This morning, I'd like to read from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 28, this Easter account. Now, it's going to be interesting because um, you guys have not sat through a sermon in like a year, because you weren't doing that at home, don't lie. No one sat through a sermon at home. You were doing other things and multitasking and laying in bed. And no... So this is a, a test. Like, we'll see how, how, how well you do today. So, um, but Matthew 28, let me read this to you, and then I'll pray, and we'll get into today's uh, teaching. Verse 1, early in the morning, early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow, and the guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. Then the angel spoke to the women, do not be afraid, he said. I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Come see where his body was laying, and now go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Remember what I told you. So the women ran quickly from the tomb, and they were frightened, but also filled with great joy. And they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. And as they went, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they ran to him, and he gra they grasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, it's hard to say anything but just thank you. Thank you. We're so grateful. We have, we're slowly kind of emerging from whatever the heck this last year was, and you are still with us. You have not left us nor for, forsooken us, Lord, and there is a kind of resurrection. I pray that would happen. There would be a kind of resurrection that happens in our church, even as we celebrate your resurrection. So today, give us ears to hear, maybe for the first time, what the gospel is. I pray you would anoint me and use me. In Jesus' name. Amen. Today, I would like to share with you the good news, what the Bible calls the gospel. Now, the gospel has to do with Jesus, his teachings about the kingdom of God, his death, and ultimately, and probably most importantly, according to the New Testament, his resurrection. And all of this is what the New Testament calls the gospel. The gospel is simply an old English word that means good news. But there's a problem that I face this morning. I want to share with you good news but we have all just lived through 12 months, some would even argue five years, of things like fake news and clickbait news and news addiction and endless news cycles and, of course, just plain old bad news. New York Times had an article last week where they confirmed the bad news bias that America has toward reporting on all things COVID. The article cited the research of a Dartmouth professor who found that reporting on the pandemic was much more negative in the U.S. media than any other media source in the world, including scientific journals and global media. The researchers couldn't give a definitive answer as to why this was the case, but their leading theory was is that bad news sells. Or in their words, U.S. media gives people what they want. Bad news gets more clicks and shares on Facebook. Bad news drives up viewership and thus drives up profits from network who sell ad time. So for me, sharing good news when we have been habituated towards bad news over the last year or so is hard. However, I, I think we all know that we still have a deep hunger for good news. If you remember early in the pandemic, John Krasinski's show, Some Good News, that exploded on YouTube. 
During the pandemic, Google searches for good news spiked and IG accounts like Upworthy and Good News Moment soared. It's almost like in the world of fake news and endless news cycles of bad news, we're primed for some good news. So I want to share with you this morning the good news. But good news, like all news, can't just come out of nowhere. For news to actually do something in our lives, to do more than just make us smile and keep swiping, or to do more than just make us happy for a fleeting moment and then back to life as normal, news, for news to do something, we have to know the backstory. Philosopher and writer Alain de Bouton wrote a book some years ago simply called The News, A User's Manual. I remember I heard him lecture at City Arts and Lecture when those things were still happening a few years ago, and it was, it was incredible. He, in this lecture and in his book, he argued that a lot of things about the news and how it's packaged in today's modern media, how he believes that the news occupies uh, in the modern in our modern era, it, it, it occupies the dominant position in society as religion did in the ancient world. But one thing he said that was the reason why the news hardly moves us anymore to empathy or action. And so he said one of the problems with the news as we take it in today is because the news reported today, as it's reported today, lacks context. The news, when we read it or hear it, lacks a backstory. And therefore, news is just consumed and not taken in to change us to make us more wise. So you may see my growing problem of wanting to share the good news of the gospel with you this Easter morning, because like with most news we hear, we can fall into the temptation of receiving news without context. So I say that Jesus Christ lived a holy life, that he died for you and rose from the grave on Easter morning, and some of you may say, yay, and clap, and that's amazing. Some of you may say, okay. And others might say, no thanks. And that's it. For a lot of us, we don't see the context. We don't see how what I just shared fits into the whole. But I would like to show you. Historian and theologian Tom Wright says that what makes any news good news must have four components. The first is something has to have happened. Preferably something new. That's why we call it news. Second of all, the second thing that has to happen for news to stick to our bones or for it to be good news is all good news has some history. It's a part of a larger story. And the third thing, all good news is about something that has happened and because of the happening, everything will now be different. And lastly, he says, good news typically introduces some period of waiting. For example, my mom just finished all her chemo, and the doctor said it was very, very successful. Done. No more chemo. That is good news. Yes, thank you. Praise God. Something happened. That's good news. But this news has some history, has some backstory. She got diagnosed with breast cancer three years ago, had it removed, was in remission. It came back at stage four this past summer, went all over her body, and the first doctor she saw says, there's nothing that you can do. You might have weeks to live. Just go home. That's the largest story that sets the good news in context. We thought she had weeks to live. Not only that, but this, new, this good news will now make everything different. It opens up for us a new and different future. We were able to get her into her own home, which we never thought she'd be able to live alone again. We just planned a trip to Hawaii with her this summer, which is her dream to visit that island just once in her life. Things we never thought was possible. But also, we're in a period of waiting. She still has no hair. She's still pretty weak. 
She has swelling in her body. Her body still needs to recover. So we wait. Good news of all kinds shares this pattern. The vaccine shares the same pattern. Depending on if you see it as good news, let's just assume you do for a second. <laughs> Something happened. A vaccine was created and approved, but it's a part of a larger story, kind of like a global pandemic shutting down trade, global trade and world travel and shutting down leaving your house. But now everything will be different. We will now have a new and different future. People are calling it the new normal, but we wait. The vaccine rollout takes months and many of you are still waiting to get it. Okay, so this is the nature of good news and it's the nature of the gospel. It's the nature of the good news of Jesus. But I want to pause here. I want to pump the brakes a bit. Like I said, I want to share with you good news and the good news of Jesus. I want to show you what happened on Easter Sunday. I want to show you the backstory in which it happened, why everything is now new and a different future, and what we're waiting for as Christians. But if I just turn to good news right now, I know many of you will be bracing for impact. Because this is how many of us take in our good news, with a very urban cynicism. Like, we've seen too much stuff to be happy about good news. We know there's another shoe that will drop. It's the kind of thing that says, yeah, we may have a vaccine now, and things are opening up now, but what, what that really means is I have to emerge back to real life, and I have to assess the damage done from the past 12 months. I have to look at the loss now. I have to see who moved, who died, what plans totally changed, and now I have to face them. See, before I had an excuse. There was a global pandemic, a lockdown. I wasn't dating. Well, we're in a pandemic. I'm not married. Well, there's lockdown. I'm not crushing it as a parent. Well, COVID. I had an excuse before, but not anymore. Thanks a lot, vaccine. The fact is we always brace ourselves for disappointment when we hear good news. Brene Brown in her great book on leadership says that when something happens in life, we start to celebrate it only to find ourselves thinking, don't get too happy, that's just inviting disaster. Something wonderful happens, something like good news, and for a brief second, you let joy wash over you, and then five seconds later, the excitement is gone, and you're panicked about that bad thing that's going to happen to counter the positive thing. She said it's because joy is actually the most vulnerable emotion we feel. And when we feel joy of good news, it becomes a place of deep vulnerability for us, a place of beauty and fragility and deep gratitude and impermanence all wrapped up into one experience, but it's too much. And so what we do is we quickly move to self-protection. We grab vulnerability by the shoulders and say, you will not catch me off guard, vulnerability. You will not sucker punch me with pain. I will be prepared and ready for you. So when something joyful happens, when we receive good news, and maybe when we receive the best news we've ever heard, we start planning on being hurt. We let fear creep in and take over. Fear. One of my favorite albums of all time is Kendrick Lamar's album, Damn. Part of my language, that's just the name of the album. <laughs> the album won a Pulitzer Prize. The album won a Pulitzer Prize. And if Kendrick Lamar never comes out with another album, I will not blame him because the trilogy of Mad Kid and De Pippin Butterfly and Damn was just as close to perfect writing as humanly possible. So I would not blame him if he never came out with another album. Anyway, so there's a song on the album called Fear, and it's one of my favorite songs. This song seemed to sum up all the lyrical movement from all of his albums. The song has the most biblical imagery of the whole album. In this song, he reveals that most of his life he's been driven by fear. 
He starts the song saying that the fear of his youth was his mom who transferred her fear of being broke and homeless onto him. Because this is what we do with our fears. We project them onto our kids, onto our spouse, onto God. When he was a teenager, he feared dying by wearing the wrong gang color in Compton or by catching a stray bullet or by police brutality or by some crackhead who was willing to kill to get a fix or the fear of dying by simply existing. Because as he says, quote, I'll probably die because that's what you do when you're 17. So what did he do? He worked. He worked to become the best rappers of all time. And guess what? The fear didn't go away once he got successful. His fear only grew. In the third verse, Kendrick says that at 27, I grew accustomed to more fear, accumulated 10 times over throughout the years. It didn't get less fear. He got more fear. The whole song is an exploration of the base fears that drive his life. The fear of losing his life when he was young, growing up in Compton, which drove him to succeed so that his life wouldn't be in the hands of other people. But his fear didn't go away when he got more successful. It just transferred into the fear of losing everything and being right back where he started. Fear. Do you know the most repeated command in the Bible? What instruction, what directive is given again and again by God, by angels, by Jesus, by prophets, by the apostles? Here's a clue. It's not be good or be holy or even negatively don't sin or don't be immoral. None of those. The most repeated command in the Bible is do not be afraid. Fear not. The irony of that command is that though it's what we all really want to hear, it's what Kendrick Lamar wants to hear, it's what I want to hear, it's what you want to hear, we have more difficulty really obeying this command than all the other commands in the Bible. Most of us cherish fear so closely we can't shed it even when we're told to by God. We actually emerge from the womb of our mothers afraid of being alone, of being unloved, of being abandoned. We start to play with other kids and grow up. We start to to mix it up with teenagers and young adults as we grow and we fear all the way through, fearing looking stupid or the fear of being left behind in some sort of race that we're all automatically placed in. We enter the workforce and we're afraid that we might not get the job we really want. And then we fear that if we do get the job we want, we won't be able to do well in that job and advance in our careers. And this double fear lasts for most people all of their lives. We contemplate marriage, and we fear that we might never find the right person. Or we fear we will find the right person, but marriage will turn out to be a disaster. We consider a move, and we're afraid of making the wrong move, whether a career to a new city. We look ahead to retirement, and we fear growing older and frail and of dying suddenly. Now, of course, these are just the big fears, the big ones. There are dozens of lesser fears which reinforce and feed these fears. And behind all of these fears looms the fear of death. Now, do you see why the command, do not fear, is one of the hardest of all commands to keep? It makes flea sexual immorality look like a walk in the park. I could do that command, I just can't do the fear command. And so we're here on Easter Sunday when we collectively gaze into the empty tomb of Jesus and we say that this is good news. But how does this event, this news, have any real consequence on how we live our lives. In the reading of our text, I hope you notice that the first words from the empty tomb, from both the angel and Jesus himself are, do not be afraid. That's what the angel said to the woman. Don't be afraid. 
I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen, just as he said. And the women hurried away to tell the disciples when suddenly Jesus met them, and Jesus says to them, don't be afraid. When the Apostle Paul, who wrote a lot of what we know as the New Testament, talks about the resurrection of Jesus, he says that if you take away the resurrection, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead physically, if it's not a historical fact, then the whole of Christianity falls apart. Either the event happened or it didn't happen. It's either true and thus everything is different or it's not true. In that case, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that our faith is useless. And then he says this very strange thing. He says, if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. What he means by this is this. If you go to Jesus for some teaching and to show you how to live this life on earth, and that's it, you must be miserable. He says, actually, you are miserable. That's the word pity is translated miserable. You're miserable. Now, why and how can he say this? Because the gospel is good news, not good advice. It's news. The gospel of Jesus is good news, not simply good advice on how to live. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus had some great things to say on living life about spirituality and what it looks like to live in God's reality now. We're literally, literally in a series on it on Sunday right now. But according to the New Testament, that's not where it starts. That's not the motivation. That's not the impetus. The impulse of the Christian life is the resurrection. Everything for Paul pivoted around the complex event that happened. News that the Messiah died, was buried, was raised, and was seen. Take that away and Christianity collapses. But, and here's my point. But if it's put in its proper place, the whole world is different. That is news. So let me share with you the good news. News and not advice. Good news and not bad news. The gospel and not a religious system. The gospel is that God made this world. He made it out of love with the desire of spreading this love into all of his good creation. That is why, though there is brokenness in our world, there is still, at the very center of it, an indescribable and oftentimes maddening harmony to it all. And humanity was created to be partners with God, co-rulers in God's good creation. But something went horribly, horribly wrong, and it was fear. Somehow fear was an option in this good world God created. Somehow fear got into our first parents. Fear that this good God who created everything was withholding from them because they were told to enjoy all of creation except for this one single tree. Now, I'll warn you that there is a talking snake in this story. In this story. And don't be bothered by this. The world is charged with the great mystery of good and evil. We all know this. And this talking snake put doubt behind the fears of our first parents. Maybe this God is withholding something from you. Maybe he knows that when you eat from this forbidden tree, you'll finally be whole, complete like God himself. And so they ate from this tree. See, fear is at the root of so much of our wrongness. Fear is at the root of so much of our human propensity to screw things up. When we grasp for what is not ours, it's because we are afraid that if we don't, we won't have enough. When we use sex as a means of self-gratification rather than the glorious affirmation of a lifelong commitment, we do so because we're afraid. We fear loneliness, we fear rejection, and we fear the lack of intimacy in this life. When we lie, we do so because we are afraid that the truth will be embarrassing. And on and on and on. And this is the backstory. 
The world was at peace and a kind of harmony that felt perfect, but something went wrong. But then in the story, God made a covenant. He made a promise. He made a promise to Adam and Eve. He made a covenant with Noah. He made one with Abraham. He made one with Moses. He made one with David. Now, a covenant is a loving promise, a formal loving promise like marriage. So God not only created the good world, we know, but promised over and over again to redeem it and restore it through humanity. Creation and covenant are the backstory to the good news of the resurrection. And not just creation and covenant, but love. God is a God of love, utter, self-giving, merciful, reconciling, healing, restorative love. There are a lot of different words for love in the Bible. There's a lot. A few months ago, Ashley and I were in the car driving around and the song, uh, I Like It by Cardi B came on. You should know this song. It's one of the best songs of all time. She has this line that goes, I like going to the jeweler. I put rocks all in my watch. And Ash turns to me and is like, what, what are rocks? And I'm like, diamonds. She said, wait, I thought ice was diamonds. I'm like, baby, it's, there's a million words for diamonds in rap. It's like that with love in the Bible. The word for love when it comes to God's love is the word, <laughs> you like that one? I thought you saw that coming, but I, you didn't. Um, there, the word for love when it comes to God's love is the word chased in the Old Testament and agape in the New. The word means loyal love. It means unconditional love. The gospel is good news based on loyal love, based on God's unconditional love, which means God never gives up on human, the human condition. God never gives up on his rescue mission to reach the hearts and lives of people, even if it means giving up his own life. This is the context of the good news. You cannot, you cannot even understand and grasp the good news unless you have this context. But how is there a new and better future because of this good news? What does the resurrection of Jesus change? French philosopher Luc Ferry took up the task of trying to summarize and compare 2,000 years of philosophy in his book, A Brief History of Thought. Ferry says that the classical author Cicero's definition of the main task of all philosophy, that philosophy is being able to teach humanity how to face death, is the best definition of philosophy that we have. That the point of philosophy is not to keep yourself amused or really even understand the world, but in Luc Ferry's words, to save one's skin. Philosophy is about how to deal with death. See, living life well, which is another point of philosophy, actually depends on being able to learn and conquer our fears of the various faces of death. The way we live life well is we have to face the death of our youthfulness as we age, the death of our careers possibly, the death of our loved ones, even our own death. This is what philosophy is trying to do, conquer our fears and helping us live well. Now you may say that death is a part of life. You simply don't exist when you die. Why bother yourself with such unfixable and pointless problems? But Luke Ferry says that we all know that line of reasoning is too brutal to be honest. Because think about it, what gives life meaning? It's the relationships with people we love. Can anyone really honestly say if you have no dread of a future state that will strip you of everything you hold dear, you don't fear that? Saying that you don't fear death because it's a part of life is not intellectually honest. 
Luke Ferry says that the irreversibility of things is a kind of death at the heart of life. That certain things happen and they're irreversible. That one day you will die, your loved ones will die, and it's irreversible. That is the death at the heart of life. In order to live life well, free, capable of love and joy, we must learn how to conquer the inevitable, terrible fear of irreversible losses. But in his chapter called The Victory of Christianity, he, he comes to the conclusion that that's actually historically hard to refute. He says, quote, Christianity created a new doctrine of salvation so effective that it opened a chasm in the philosophies of antiquity and dominated the world for nearly 1,500 years. Christianity would seem to be the only version of salvation that enabled us not only to transcend the fear of death, but also beat death itself. He goes on to write that Christianity doesn't just make death less painful. He says rather correctly, the claims of Christianity are that death has been defeated and defeated by love. And not just any love, but the personal love of God. And we can have personal salvation through Jesus. He says that this is the best thing offered to humanity. Luke Ferry is not a Christian. You think he gets some points for writing that, but that's not how it works. See, the resurrection of Jesus isn't just about the physical body of Jesus being crucified and then risen from the dead physically. Those truths are there and they are vital and non-negotiable, but they actually point beyond themselves. They point to the God who is capable and responsible for them. They point to a God of love who looks right at the irreversibility of things and says, behold, I make all things new. New. This is good news. And believing this good news means believing that no matter what you go through in this life, no matter what you face or how dark it seems to get, everything will be all right. Listen, everything will be all right. Why? Because Jesus Christ rose from the grave. And not as an accident, not out of nowhere, but as a part of a large sweeping story of God's relentless love going after to redeem and restore humanity. And that belief in the resurrection is incompatible with fear. So when Jesus meets the woman at the empty tomb and the disciples behind locked doors and says, don't be afraid, he says to them, and so does the angel, he says this to them because the reality of the resurrection is incompatible with fear. See, what the resurrection of Jesus means is that you don't ever have to be afraid again. As Oscar Wilde put it, everything is going to be fine in the end. And if it's not the end, if it's not fine, it's not the end. That's the message of the resurrection. That's the gospel. The resurrection means that the worst thing that happens will not be the last thing that happens. The resurrection means that you can participate in this, in this world, that you can love your loved ones, and that will not be the end when you separate. That you can give yourself to endeavors and even lose your life for them, and that's not the end of the story. Now, there's one last bit about news that we haven't answered, and it's this. Good news typically opens up a period of waiting. What do we wait for? We wait for, as J.R. Tolkien said, all sad things to become untrue. Jesus was the first fruits of all that sad things coming untrue. He was like, I mean, we don't live like this here in California and San Francisco, but I was just in the Pacific Northwest 
last week, and it's real winter there. It's like real winter where the sun doesn't come out and it's cold and rainy the whole time. But yet, right about this time of year, there's like buds on the tree and everyone goes, oh my gosh, spring is actually a real thing. It's coming. It's happening. Jesus was the first fruits like that. Like all the sad things in winter will come untrue. We wait for this moment. This opens up now a period of waiting where we wait for the lion to lay down with the lamb, for guns to turn into plowshares, for justice to roll down like a river. We actively wait. We get involved in our waiting. We can give our lives for it because even if we die in the end, even if we die giving ourselves to what is good and beautiful, what is just and right and holy, even if we die God raises dead things. If we suffer, Christ will work out in us, like Paul says, his life in us and his death in us. The way 1 Corinthians ends the chapter by Paul writing all about the resurrection, the way it ends is that Paul says this, let nothing move you. Always give yourself to the work of God because your labor is not in vain. Now, why does he say this? Why does he end his chapter on the resurrection by saying, don't stop working. Your labor is not in vain. Why does he do that? Because somehow, in ways we cannot discern right now, what is done in the present out of love for God and in power of the Spirit will be part of God's new world when he finally arrives. And so we wait. We wait. We sow in tears. We continue to press in and share the gospel and live the gospel and know that God brings dead things to life. This is good news. This is the gospel. And I pray that you would receive it, that you would believe in Jesus and be born again. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would get a sense and an understanding of of just as we're facing life, as we're facing all of the, the tragedy of the last year, as we're facing the hope of a new world, I pray that we would do this with resurrection motivation. I pray that, that we would know that our, our labor as parents, our labor as, as people who are activists, our labor as followers of Jesus in this world is not in vain. There are so many things that we've had to die to this last year. There's so much wreckage. And I pray that we would be able to look at it with the, the impulse of the resurrection. And I pray for those that are living their life based on fear, that the decisions they make are based on fear. The good news they have is tainted by fear. I pray that you would release those by the power of your spirit right now, as we put our trust in you, that you release those who have been afraid and maybe even underneath all the fear, afraid of death our entire life. Would you save us? In Jesus' name, amen. Church, let's stand. Let's stand and worship.